All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Anish Samarodi, and to kick off today's New Tech City, I want to share a very telling story. So the other evening, I went to this event at a fancy PR agency around the corner from the WNYC studios in Manhattan. Picture this, a panel of top people from some of the big names in New York tech. Etsy, Airbnb, General Assembly. In the audience, more big names from the city's tech scene, plus government officials and political candidates. They gathered to discuss what should happen when this city's mayor, Michael Bloomberg, leaves office at the end of the year. So it started out with a discussion about the history of innovation. The incumbents have been around for a long time. I mean, the way of doing things has been around for a long time, and every disruptor throughout history has faced barriers in the beginning. I mean, the car faced barriers from the horse and buggy industry that forced them to have certain limits on speed and everything else. There was a jab at tech journalists. I think the media story in in New York, I think, is like, Mm -hmm. look at all the geeks making these websites and iPhone apps. And (laughs) we need to shift that conversation to the, the people in the community. And then there was an interesting question. An executive from Madison Square Garden, New York's most famous arena since 1968, asked the panel, How do you commit to the city that we're here to stay and that we want to be part? So it's hard to hear him, but here's what he asked. Why should the government invest in the infrastructure you want when many of us are suspicious that you tech companies aren't going to stick around? That's what he wondered. And this is how the CEO of General Assembly, a popular education hub for wannabe techies, answered. I would say, look, we're... We have 10-year leases, so we're not going anywhere. But the guy from Madison Square Garden had a quick response. That's what we thought, too. (laughs) The crowd thought that was hilarious. Because just the week before, you see, the city council had voted to limit the historic arena's lease to make way for a new Penn Station in Midtown. So, so much for sticking around. Uh, (laughs) The panelists' laughter was a little more awkward because, really, that comment puts the whole growth of the tech sector in New York into perspective. Even an old-time venue, symbolic of New York City itself, doesn't have security in this tightly packed metropolis. Longevity can come down to real estate. And as tech startups here in New York outgrow co-working spaces or incubators, they have to deal with a market that still plays by old-school rules. Here's New Tech City's Dan Tucker joining the hunt for space. Trying to find the right office in New York City is a little like looking for an apartment. The hot neighborhoods are expensive, the market is tight, and you might have to check out dozens of places before you find the one. And if you're a small, growing tech firm, there's an added wrinkle. Imagine if you had no idea how big your family was going to be in six months. How big of a space would you try to rent? We're going from, let's say, seven people in the office to 12 people in the office to 20 people in the office, all inside of 18 months, 24 months. So what do we do then? Do we get a big space that then we lease out to other people and then have to kick them out as we continue to grow? That's Brandon Martinez, co-founder of Indie Music, a startup that helps bands optimize and monetize YouTube content. 
He and other founders and CEOs in the tech world say most landlords and brokers don't understand internet businesses and aren't willing to change their one-size-fits-all contracts. That disconnect has led to a boom in subleases, with bigger tech companies offering desks or corners or conference rooms to smaller companies. Startups are mobile. They come in different sizes. They seek flexibility. Most floor plates of offices are a lot bigger than your average early stage startup will need. So mutualizing or sharing in this way, I've found to be extremely common. Serial entrepreneur Amol Sarva has a lease in a building on 18th Street, right in the heart of Silicon Alley. He doesn't need all the space, so he's divided it up for two main tenants. His tenants did the same thing. So now there's five or six startups on one floor. One of them is Aloha, a nine-person health and wellness company. Its founder, Constantine Bazanz, says renting space from another startup is the way to go. It's great because you don't have to sign like any big contracts, and we, we had a really good deal, so it was good. Down in Soho, another tech company, Squarespace, is growing fast and needs more space. Founder and CEO Anthony Casalena thought about decamping to a place four times the size, something the company could grow into over a few years. So it's like, how far do you want to jump ahead? And, you know, if you're not going to jump ahead and move into some massive office, well... How much can your company tolerate that being broken up over multiple floors? You know, mm-hmm. will that hurt things? And then there's communication challenges with that. In the end, Casalina decided to keep the Soho loft and annex another office on the same block. The downside is employees have to go next door to see their coworkers. But there are upsides too, like flexibility, lower cost, and a shorter sublease. Jonathan Bowles of the Center for an Urban Future says real estate is becoming a bigger issue in the tech sector and that it's something the next mayor will have to address. How do we make sure that there's ample space for the next round of startups, that there's enough space for the successful startups of of the last couple of years to to grow? The current administration is trying to deal with the demand with grants for companies willing to move downtown. Kyle Kimball of the city's Economic Development Corporation says the city recognizes landlords and tech companies aren't always on the same page. I think we're hopeful that the real estate community uh, will innovate. They want less risk, more stable cash flow. There's probably a business in there for someone to step in and say, I'll take the risk and I want to have exposure to tech companies. Ironically, if that idea inspires a new company to form in New York City, there might be one more startup vying for space. For WNYC, I'm Dan Tucker. to school, primaries and elections, Rosh Hashanah. On the East Coast, it is also U.S. Open time. Two weeks of whacking a yellow ball back and forth. It's a sport that prides itself on tennis whites, polite applause and tradition. Sorry, tennis, you're about to be disrupted, too. Hello, Doug Robson. I called Doug Robson, who writes about tennis and new sports technology for USA Today. Some players have been seen testing Google Glass during practice sessions. But Doug says the door is being opened to new player analysis technology. There's a a company called Babolat, a racket company from France, that's uh, come out with a racket called the Play and Connect that has a microchip in it and a a USB port beneath the butt cap of the racket. And so it records performance metrics. So it can tell you information about the power on your shot, the spin on your shot, you know, how consistently you swing, whether you're hitting the ball in the sweet spot, this kind of biometric information 
that can tell you how you are performing. Another startup has developed a camera that records other information, like your court position, unforced errors, and the ball's direction. It's been developed by some Israeli engineers who got their background in the Air Force. They've set up a sort of a mini Hawkeye system with fewer cameras on a court that gives uh, instant video and 3D tactical feedback. It tags your game patterns and can provide all sorts of information that's never been available to players or at least casual players on a regular basis. Those sound pretty cool. Are they going to be allowed to be used in the big formal tournaments like the U.S. Open? I think what tennis is saying is that we're going to peek into Pandora's box, but we're not going to open it quite yet. Doug's referring to a rule that takes place next year. The U.S. Tennis Federation will treat any equipment that collects or analyzes a player's performance like it treats the coaches, real ones, meaning they won't be allowed on during matches, but they can be consulted with afterwards. It's a funny thing. Like when I picture tennis, I think of, you know, tennis whites and really like a traditional sort of staid game that wants to maintain some of that. Is tennis sort of late to being high tech or is that just uh, my own misperception? I don't think it's your misperception at all. I think tennis has been a dinosaur when it comes to data and analysis, certainly in regards to collecting data and providing data. Uh, Tennis is far behind other sports like baseball, like basketball. What's interesting is that you're finding a lot of Uh, This information is starting to trickle out, largely from amateurs uh, on a grassroots level. What's been the biggest change in the last decade or so has been these new polymer strings that have come in that uh, put a lot more action on the ball. So players can take larger cuts at the ball. They can swing harder. And because these strings snap back and so quickly and put more spin on the ball, it allows them to take these giant uh, swipes and the ball still stays in play. That really has been the biggest change in the sport in the last decade or so, and it's why we're seeing uh, some of the most incredible uh, athletes uh, in the longest points, in the longest matches, as a result of their ability to keep the ball in play with these strings that give them defensive characteristics that you know, were not available previously. As an amateur player, I have this fantasy of wearing Google Glass and it's showing exactly where I should place my racket, like for the sweet mm-hmm. spot. And what do you think? Google Glass and tennis, a match made in heaven? Why not? I mean, some players have already started testing them. Bethany Maddox-Sands, an American uh, player, uh, has recorded you know, hitting sessions and contact points and things like that. She's been wearing them around uh, some of her practice sessions. So all these things have interesting potential as far as performance analytics feedback for players. They're interesting potential for viewers uh, who might be able to see uh, through a player's eyes what it's like to you know, be a world-class tennis player. Doug, this was so great. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. And now to end the show, it's time to finally get to the bottom of it. What the heck is the difference between angel investors and venture capitalists, or VCs? People often uh, mix up angels and VCs, or they say it in one breath, angels and VCs, or VCs and angels. But they're very, very different creatures. That's David Rose, founder of New York Angels and CEO of Gust.com, a website that connects investors and startups. And if you're wondering where all these inexperienced, fledgling entrepreneurs in the tech world are getting their money from... Well, David stepped out from running a conference for angel investors to explain. Well, the first place you get it is from your own pocket. So you pay out of pocket. And then maybe you borrow money on your credit cards and doing it. And then you try and go to a bank to get money, and the bank says, no, 
because banks don't lend money to people who they're not absolutely sure can pay for it, and your new business isn't paying for it yet. So banks are out. So then you go to your parents, and well, maybe they shouldn't be investing in your business, but maybe they lend you some money because they love you, so you get what's called a friends and family round of money. Um, but then you go through that, and you still don't have revenues, but the business is growing, and you think it's, it's worth something, so where do you turn to next for money? And that's where angel investors come in. Venture capitalist is a professional money manager who raises a big pool of money from institutions that have a lot of cash, for example, pension funds or insurance companies or university endowments who are sitting on billions of dollars. And so a venture capitalist raises anywhere from $50 million to a billion dollars and a big pool, and they go in and try and invest that money in companies that are growing very, very fast so they can make a lot of money and return money back to their investors, taking off a little piece of it for them. In contrast, angel investors are individual people. They're not funds, they're not big institutions, that's you and me, or you and me with appropriate income. So it's not just a good cause, and people often mix that up. So, you know, deserving young people say, oh, I'm going to cure, save the whole world, so please give me money. Well, angels don't give anybody money. They invest money to try and make money. And so the one qualification, the one and only qualification legally in the U.S. is you have to be known as what's called an accredited investor. And that's defined by the Securities and Exchange Commission as some who either has over a million dollars in investable assets, not including the value of their primary residence, or else has had an income of $200,000 a year for at least two years. The statistics show that in the U.S., it's a, a white male who tends to be 57 years old and have an advanced degree and was himself an entrepreneur um, for over 15 years and has started two or three companies. Um, that is beginning to be expanded. So there are now a number of groups of women angels and minority angels. This is about as risky an investment as you can make, so therefore you better be prepared to lose it. You say that it's very risky, but I just heard you make a speech where you were saying that the if you invest on the stock market, chances are your returns are about 3 or 4%, but that angel investors have usually about 25% of returns. How is that possible when you've just told me it's one of the riskiest ways to invest your money? Aha! Uh-huh. It's a very good question and with a very simple, straightforward answer, which is any one individual angel investment is about as risky as it is possible to make short of going to Atlantic City. On the other hand, if you do it professionally and responsibly over a long period of time with real discipline, the numbers absolutely work in your favor because here's how it works. For every 10 companies in which I invest, and I see lots and lots of companies, and I do the best job I can at picking the ones I think will be winners because of the market and the entrepreneur and the financials and everything else. So with the best intentions I have and the hardest work I can do and all my knowledge of 10 companies in which I invest, five of them are going to fail. I mean fail totally, 100% kaput, bankrupt, with all of my money gone. Now, of the remaining five companies, two of them, after, say, six years, five, six years, are going to return the exact amount of money I put in. Okay, well, that's better than nothing, um, but uh, they've, they've had to use my money for five or six years, and I haven't. That's not very good, so I really lost money because I could have done other things with it during that time. Well, that only leaves three companies left. Of those three companies, two of those will be successes, modest successes. They may return two or three times the amount of uh, my, my investment, which is really very good. But remember, we now have they have to make up for all those ones that I lost in there and for the time value of money and what I could have gotten an in interest if I had invested somewhere else. And so if you look at that, by the time I've done those nine companies, say I'm out six years that I've done this, I've been holding these companies for six years, I've been through nine companies, and I am now exactly back to where I started. <clears throat> That's not very good, right? No. Except that that one last company, that last company is a home run. 
And if that company returns 10, 20, 30, 50 times the amount of money that I put in, when you now take that back and apply it to all the companies in which I invested and all the money I invested, that's where you get a, an annualized internal rate of return, an IRR, of 25 to 30%. And to get that 25 to 30%, David Rose has, over the years, personally invested in over 70 early stage companies. You can check out the list of companies he's currently betting on at rose.vc portfolio. So there you have it. Now you finally know the real difference between angel investors and venture capitalists. Or maybe you already knew, smarty pants, but I'm sure you can think of someone who should know. So send them a link to newtechcity.org. And if there's something else you'd like to hear on how tech is changing the way we live and work, just let me know on Twitter at Manoush Z. See you next week. Miss you already. ready.